Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I hope all of you had a, a meaningful weekend with Easter yesterday, Passover seders taking place on Friday and Saturday night, um, and um, our Islamic friends continuing uh, Ramadan. So I hope relaxing and um, and as I said, meaningful. I, I want to make one comment about a show we the show we did on Friday. You know, Friday we decided to break form. And because it was this interesting convergence of holidays, um, we had Good Friday uh, for Christians, of course. We had the first night of Passover for Jews, and Ramadan continued. So we had faith leaders talk with us, if you didn't hear the show, about what their traditions mean and why they are particularly important in these troubled times. So I want to say we got really lovely notes from some of you saying thank you for that, it, we needed that. It, it nourished us. It fed our souls. But I also have to say, I had no idea just how angry some people can get about any talk about religion. We got some really nasty notes uh, from people saying, why are you talking about these fantasies? Why don't you talk about Santa Claus next? We got one social media post with uh, someone who said, F religion uh, spelled out. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. And it said something to me about just how intolerant uh, the times have made some of the people uh, who are out there in the world today. And I'm sorry uh, for those of you who don't want to hear a conversation about religion, um, but I was fascinated by how, how energetic and angry you were about it. I think I'll stick with the people who enjoyed the conversation and said it lowered their blood pressure a little bit, which is one of the responses I got. All right. That said, let's plunge into today's show. Um, I said in the headline, um, a lot of polling that's worth talking about today. So let's get right to our terrific panel. Jim Galloway, former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with me. And Jim, we've got panel of great political scientists to talk with today. How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm just wondering now whether we need to rename Atlanta United. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, it's, I think it's the most hopeful team name we have, so let's keep it, please. Thank you for joining us, uh, Jim. Adrian Jones is here. She's a professor of political science and the director of pre-law at Morehouse College. Alan Abramowitz, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Emory University, and uh, Amy Steigerwald, Associate Department Chair Head of Political Science Department at Georgia State and a Professor of Political Science at Georgia State. So thank you all for being uh, with us today. Uh, Jim, as I said, we're going to talk a lot about polls, and of course this is radio, so numbers are a little harder to get across to people, but we'll do our best to keep it pretty simple and straightforward. I thought one of the most interesting polls, I'll start with you on this, 
We got numbers uh, over the weekend um, from our friend Mark Roundtree. He is a Republican pollster at Landmark Communications, his company. But Mark has always been considered uh, uh, pretty straight down the middle, a pretty reliable pollster, I think it's safe to say, and tends to have a higher accuracy uh, on polling than a lot of other people, right? Uh, yes, especially when it comes to the Republican field. That's right. That's right. Okay, so that said, Alan Abramowitz, let me start with you on this. According to Roundtree's poll, which was 660 likely Republican voters, first of all, he shows that Brian Kemp has an approval rating of basically 56%. And one of the things that I think is interesting about the approval rating is it's spread pretty evenly across crosstabs. Men and women um, all are right around 56, 55% of approval of his work. And uh, white uh, uh, respondents and black respondents are fairly uh, uh, high up and responding as well. Whites at 56%, uh, blacks at 54%. So start with that. What does that tell you uh, about... Um, about his approval rating across uh, lines. Now, we're talking about Republican primary voters here, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure, of course we are. Of course right. we are. Okay, just to make that clear. Um, so, first of all, 56% is not really all that impressive an approval rating for an incumbent Republican governor among fellow Republican voters. However, in, in the current political climate and environment in which he's being challenged, for his, the Republican nomination, uh, and in which he's being opposed by the former Republican president, who we know still remains quite quite popular among Republican voters, 56 percent is, is probably not bad, and in fact, uh, you know, looks like that might very well be sufficient to carry him uh, through to the to the not, at least to the nomination. Well, Amy, that was kind of my point. I mean, you know, I think Alan is correct. If You would love to see that a Republican governor would have even higher approval ratings among people of his own party. But on the other hand, considering that he's got a challenge on his hands from David Perdue, as Alan points out, this seems to be solid enough to help him move forward. I think so, because the other part that we see, I mean, so what is notable in this poll is that it does show quite high approval ratings for uh, former President Trump. Um, sort of overall, the favorable approval rating is almost 70 percent. And so what is interesting there is on some level, one might argue that Kent is as high as he is, given that approval rating. Um, there's also almost 20 percent in the poll who are undecided about Brian Kemp, and so that gives a lot of wiggle room to go either way. But I think the other part of it is that's notable is that when you get down to the part of the poll where they start to ask, who would you vote for uh, in the upcoming primary, um, across sort of all of the different breakdowns, Kemp wins, and also notably wins with enough to avoid a runoff, which is, of course, what he really wants, right? I, I think in many ways there's not a lot of people um, – Purdue has not done particularly well, even when people find out that he has Trump's uh, endorsement. That's not really helping him. But the real question is, can Kemp avoid a runoff, or is he going? Is this going to go on even longer, where he's got to spend money on both the primary and the runoff before he can get to the general election? So, Adrian, let's look at the horse race that uh, Mark Roundtree uh, uh, 
established with his polling. He has Brian Kemp at 52% of GOP voters, David Perdue at 27.5 or 28% if you round it up. <laughs> Nobody comes close. Candace Taylor is at 9%. Remember, there are five candidates uh, running in, in that race. Um, but I think, Adrian, while that sounds good for Kemp, I, I think that's a little higher than the other polls have. There's not another poll that I think shows Brian Kemp over 50%, Adrian. This is why I think it's a good point that, you know, he wants to win that primary without running off. Um, I think that enough of the GOP base is coming around to understanding that the election was not stolen. I think there's a lot of room for people to get on board with Kemp, um, particularly if he doesn't have to do the runoff. Yeah. I, I- I mean, I, I think this, this poll is a little out of line with some of the other recent polling that tends to show Kemp with a somewhat smaller lead uh, over Purdue, a more like a 12-point lead, 10, 10, 12 points, something something of that magnitude, not over 20 points. Also shows him below 50%, but with that undecided vote that could put him over 50% in, in the first round. Um, so it, all the polls are consistent in showing Kemp ahead. I thought another really interesting recent poll was the one done by the University of Georgia, <clears throat> where they actually asked Republican primary voters about the effect of a Trump endorsement, where they split their sample in half. Half the sample was just given a straight choice between the candidates, uh, including the governor's race, but also um, some of the other races down ballot. And then in the other half of the sample were actually told uh, that Donald Trump had endorsed one of the candidates. David Perdue, of course, in the governor's race, but also Jody Heiss for Secretary of State, and then some, in some of the other races as well. And 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 the finding there, which was quite interesting to me, was that uh, telling voters about the Trump endorsement made almost no difference at all in the governor's race. Uh, that it didn't it lead, to, you know, it didn't it didn't cause increased Purdue support. Um, that that Kemp led by about the same same amount. But it did have a, a substantial effect in some of the down-ballot races, uh, specifically Secretary of State, where uh, Brad Raffensperger is already trailing uh, and, and not doing very well for an incumbent, certainly. Uh, but when the voters were specifically told, these are Republican primary voters, told about the Trump endorsement, then Jody Heiss pulled far ahead of Brad Raffensperger. So that, I think that tells us something uh, about the impact of the Trump endorsement that may not matter much for governor where voters know a lot about the candidates and know a lot about Kemp. Kemp's worked very hard to appeal to um, the Republican base and a lot, put out a lot of policies that would appeal to Republican voters. Uh, but in the case of Secretary of State, I think what we're seeing there is, is, is that Raffensperger appears to be in a lot of trouble. Uh, and, and the Trump endorsement is... Uh, uh, is, is giving giving him a big problem. Uh, yeah, I, I think Ellen's right. But back on the back on the the, the landmark poll, uh, a couple things. It's it, it, what's what I find interesting. That's you know I'll uh, I'll, I'll I think I think uh, Roundtree's got it right on on at least Brian Kemp leading Purdue. Uh, and I think uh, the, uh, the the Herschel Walker number, sixty four percent, match that match that to to to, to Kemp's approval. Uh, Herschel Walker has a sixty four percent approval or a, a, a share of the vote at this point. But down ticket, down ticket. What's what I find interesting is that even with the Trump endorsement, 
the, the, the Re- Georgia Republican Party is looking at a raft full of runoffs. I mean, it, it, uh, I mean, I mean, from Secretary of State, Education, uh, Labor, Insurance. Uh, this is going to be. It, 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 there's going. There's going to be a huge second round of voting for Republicans if these polls hold up, and and that that could. Uh, uh, th- that's likely to focus on the Secretary of State's race because that's that's going to become very very important, and that raises the issue of the election. And I'm not sure that it, it this is you you have a whole lot of Republicans who want to get away from 2020. I don't think this is going to help them. It is interesting if you go down ballot, Amy. Um, you've got in that Secretary of State's race, Jody Heiss polling at 35 percent, according to Landmark. Uh, Raffensperger at 18%, that would tend to confirm what Alan just told us about the University of Georgia poll that says in down-ballot races, the Trump endorsement has an impact that it doesn't at the top of the ticket. Um, but Jody Heiss at only 35%, it, you know, he's a long way from winning this thing without a runoff. And uh, it looks like the guy who's going to come closest to him could very well be Brad Raffensperger setting up a mano a mano fight about the 2020 election. <laughs> no, I think that's entirely true. And partly what we have going on here is I think that's going to be interesting when people are really uh, faced with that. And there's a lot of attention that is given to it much more than there has been. I mean, I think one thing that, uh, you know, your voters or that the listeners are probably aware of, but a lot of people have forgotten is we haven't seen a lot of campaigning until really last week because statewide elected officials like Brad Raffensperger aren't allowed to campaign while the legislature's in session. So now that it's over, we're going to start to see that kicked up. We're going to a lot of see a lot of attention there. And I think more discussion of that. Um, the other part that I'm really struck by from the landmark poll is that in a lot of these down-ballot races, the winner is actually undecided. And undecided would not go to a runoff. Um, Mm -hmm. In many of the races, undecided has well over 50%, Uh including in lieutenant governor, um, almost 35% in the lieutenant and secretary of state's race, uh, the attorney general's race, it's their uh, insurance commissioner. And so there's also a lot of room for all of these uh, various people, including, for example, Brad Raffensperger, right, to pick up enough and really pull out ahead once that campaigning kicks in and people start to really focus on these issues. Adrian? I mean, I think because the governor has such a much better platform from which to present himself <laughs> in contradiction to the fact that the election was lost, right? I feel like Raffensperger has really taken the brunt of that because he doesn't have the flexibility or the charisma or the record. Um, you know, he came out of a situation where he was privately doing the Secretary of State's job. Suddenly, it, you know, it became incredibly public and a lot of vitriol still from the president. So I think he's more at risk, um, you know, at the uh, support by Trump for Jody Heiss and for his own need to just get out here and show people that he did the right thing in 2020 and um, has the ability to do the job going forward. Alan? Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think, I think that uh, Raffensperger uh, is in a, he's in a, a world of trouble in, in my opinion. And I actually think that although there is still a large undecided vote in that race, it's mostly because, voters haven't been paying attention and don't necessarily know that Donald Trump has endorsed Jody Heist. 
So if Jody Heiss can get out there with his message, which is basically going to be uh, that that uh, the Democrats stole the election and and uh, and that Brad Raffensperger let them do it, uh, I, I I think that he could very well win without a runoff. I, I think that Raffens when you see an incumbent at 18 percent, I mean he's the incumbent Secretary of State. Um, so for him to be under 20 percent in in that poll, even though there is a pretty big undecided, is to me a terrible. Uh, he's in, he's in a terrible situation, and I, I I don't see how he survives this. So you you would take issue with my suggesting that uh, the heist number suggests that maybe he will end up in a runoff with Raffensperger. It's just a matter of time before voters uh, you know, turn to uh, Heiss and vote for him. I think so. For Republican voters okay. who, who still strongly support Trump, and remember the large majority of Republican voters believe Trump's claim that the election was stolen. Uh, right. And, and I that's think why we, fought, we saw yeah, in that UGA uh, poll that you referred to a minute ago, they did look at that. And I mean, like mm. 70% of Republican voters in Georgia still believe the election was stolen, Alan. Mm-hmm. Jim? Right. Yeah, you know, uh, I think if, if let's go back a ways, maybe back to October or, or November, when the idea of a Trump slate of of Republican candidates were, was was first being talked about, and I and 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 this was this was going to be kind of a a, a great way for David Perdue to take on Brian Kemp. But what what I'm finding what I'm find interesting here is is you know this is a slate without any discipline. Uh, I find it really interesting that I, I I don't think that there is anyone on the in the uh, there is any down ballot candidate that has backed Purdue in the in the race for governor. That there's there's uh, you know the 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 idea of a of a team here of a te- a Trump team here is is you know it's it's pretty transactional. Uh, you you don't have uh, you don't have uh, it's, this is not a mutual support society. No. Well, with 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 Donald Trump, uh, it never is, is it, Jim? There was a really fascinating piece in the New York Times this weekend uh, talking about all of the Republican candidates from across the country uh, paying court to Donald Trump, traveling to Mar-a-Lago, doing even running commercials it where Trump is in South Florida, even though they're running for office in Oklahoma to get his attention. Mm-hmm. And of course, the, the biggest, one of the interesting things about that article was the point that uh, it made, which was that, you know, you do it at your own risk because this guy can turn on you in a heartbeat as he did Mo Brooks in Alabama and who he still, um, Adrian, you never know what he might do with David Perdue. You really don't. Um, I've been I've been impressed that he has held out on Kemp for so long. I I guess I imagine that at some point he was going to come around because he is the incumbent, um, because of what we're talking about here, where even though he doesn't necessarily have uh, he doesn't have Trump support, he's still got strong numbers. Right. Folks can see him operating the state. Um you know, I know Trump wants to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it, but he's got to know that the election was fair. Um, so I thought he might come back around. Um, so I feel like these down ballot race um, participants should really be concerned and a little bit edgy about um, where things might go, particularly depending on, you know, how does 
the former president show up in the state? Um, does he encourage people to turn out to vote this time in the primary and in the general election? Or does he, um, you know, whine and complain that Democrats have stolen it and so there's really no point? Okay, so before we leave this subject, one last uh, item from this poll that I wanted to get your take on, everybody. Um, if you go down to the attorney general's race, where Chris Carr, of course, is the incumbent running for re-election and who has aligned himself closely with Brian Kemp, he is at 32 percent among Republican voters right now. Now, there's only one other candidate in the Republican field, John Gordon, and he's down at 17 percent. So he trails Carr by a very wide margin. But I'm not quite sure what to make of that number. Is it similar to the Heist number? Uh, it, there's no way Carr is getting... Voters are not going to learn that Donald Trump supports Chris Carr because although he hasn't been as angry with Carr, outwardly angry, Carr didn't go along with the notion that the Georgia election should be overturned either. Still, it, it's... It tr it's interesting. If I were Chris Carr's camp, I'd wonder why they can't get those numbers up. Is it just a matter that we're still early in the race? And you've got 51% undecided. Amy? I think there's a couple things going on. Number one, it's early in the race. And remember, Chris Carr is one of the statewide elected officials who wasn't allowed to be campaigning while the legislative session was going on. So that means he wasn't having the opportunity to get his name out there, which I think leads to the second part, which is name recognition. The attorney general is simply not someone who most people know about, pay attention to um, in general, right? The people who listen to this show are not your average person or voter, right? Most people don't pay attention at all. They pay attention possibly the morning that they walk into the poll because their friend grabbed them and said, hey, come with me. And then they read the ballot and they say, who are these people? Right? Chris Carr is not a name that you hear a lot of attention to. He wasn't in the news in the same way. Raffensperger, right, for better or for worse, got a lot of national attention um, and has continued, right, to be mentioned in things that are going on where Chris Carr isn't. And so these really sort of go into it that for most of the people who are running, most people haven't paid attention. And because the ads haven't been playing out, because they haven't been able to fundraise and really have those out there, it's not getting them the name recognition that others have. So, Alan, yeah, I, uh, the, the car people shouldn't worry. Well, I, would, I wouldn't go that far. I think, I think I'd, I'd be concerned about the fact that he's only getting 32% and he's an incumbent. Um, but, he, you know, he's been a pretty low-profile attorney general. We, ha we haven't really mm. – uh, we haven't seen a, a, a lot of uh, media coverage of the attorney general in the last couple of years. Uh, I assume that he will uh, have a lot more money. Uh, uh, to, to put into advertising between now and the primary, and he'll be able to outspend his his opponent by a wide margin. And so, in, most likely, uh, since he's not being you know he's not being directly attacked by Trump uh, at this point, and his his challenger hasn't been endorsed by Trump, I don't think. Uh, I I I kind of think that he'll be okay, um, but it's still somewhat concerning when we're only at a little over thirty percent. Uh, in in a poll, and and you're the incumbent attorney general. Uh, yeah, no, no. Um, uh, like you said, Bill, uh, uh, Chris Carr did not kind of join, did not uh, was not a party to these uh, these efforts to overturn the election. Uh, he rejected uh, that Texas attempt to overturn 
uh, Georgia's, elec- Georgia's election uh, results with, with a lawsuit. Uh, he also, if, if you recall, uh, back on January 6th, uh, there, was some, there was some, uh, uh, there was a, 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 a Republican Attorney General's Association that, that, uh, that was driving some of the turnout to, the, to that rally. And and uh, and uh, Carr headed up the organization at the time. I think I think he I think he he, he re- resigned that that post. But uh, to to Alan's point, Carr has lucked out in that Trump has really not focused on him. He has not drawn a right. bead on on on, <laughs> on 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 the Georgia Attorney General. And as long as that happens, then I think I think he'll be in good shape. But again. You know, this is Donald Trump we're talking about, and and if things get if 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 he gets uh if he if if he really doubles down on on David Perdue, it's it's likely that Chris Carr might get swept up there, and so and so he's got to be very careful about that. All right, uh, thank you for starting us off with a great conversation on a Monday. Um, we got to get to our first break of the show. We'll be back with more, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, President Biden's. Uh, approval numbers, which people are paying an awful lot of attention to as they sink lower and lower. We'll do that more when we come back on Political Rewind. We're back on Political Rewind. Amy Steigerwald, Ellen Abramowitz, Jim Galloway, and Adrian Jones uh, join us for today's show. Adrian, uh, the Daily Beast ran a piece with a headline that was a little bit alarmist, I think, and maybe a little over the top. Nevertheless, it's worth talking about. The headline is, Biden and Democrats should be absolutely terrified by new new poll numbers. Mm-hmm. And what they point out is that, according to the latest Quinnipiac poll, uh, Biden is at 33 percent approval rating. That's lower than many other polls have him, although his other poll numbers are in the very low 40s, if not in the high 30s. But they say the reason that Democrats should really be uh, frightened is that he's polling at 24 percent in that Quinnipiac poll among Hispanics, with 54 percent disapproving. He's doing okay with African-Americans, 63 percent, but um, uh, that's 20 percent lower than a year ago. So, Adrian, what do you make of and, and we talk about this in the context of Democrats who are going to have to run with Biden uh, as their as their leader uh, in the in the uh, midterm election? I think folks might be a little bit concerned. Um, you know, once we've shifted to the Biden administration and he's responsible for covid, that has not gone well. Um, now we're going to hit this title 42 issue. Um, he has not gotten the legislation that was expected from various demographic groups. Um, so I think there's a lot of work to be done to make sure that he has the kind of polling that's going to allow candidates across the country to be able to do well, particularly where uh, the former president is so popular and does have a lot of ability to um, sway the opinion particularly of GOP voters and arguably of some Democrats. So let me add one element to this, Amy. Um, The Daily Beast story, I'll quote it directly. Um, The trends are clear. NBC News recently compared polling from 2018, a great midterm year for Democrats, with its own 2022 polling. 
They found that college-educated women are the only cohort, cohort that has become bluer. At the same time, NBC News found a pronounced Republican shift among men of 20%. That's not good news either, Amy. It's not. And I think, I mean, there's a couple of interesting things that are coming out there. Number one, that we are seeing an increase of um, what sort of political scientists really discovered around the 1990s of this uh, pronounced kind of gender gap in politics, whereas, you know, women have sort of more sort of freely voted away from their families and possibly their husbands, that we see a real difference in what parties they're attaching to and, and the views that they've got. Um, but also that I think one of the things that this poll is showing is that some of our traditional assumptions about political cleavages don't always hold. Um, Hispanics, for example, are not a monolithic group and don't necessarily line up neatly um, with where we sort of see the parties on a lot of things. So, for example, they might, uh, you know, in general, like you have a lot of Hispanics, especially coming from very Catholic countries who are not necessarily comfortable with a very pro-choice um, view on things and so are, are, in fact, supportive, for example, of more restrictive abortion laws, but yet might have different views when it comes to voting and immigration. Um, there's also a lot of concern, which we're seeing, and it's coming up uh, in the Senate race as well, about the decision of how to handle issues at the border and particularly the Title 42 uh, prohibition on um, asylum and, and refugees and whether or not uh, the decision is a correct one to, to lift that moratorium. Jim? Yeah, uh, I, number one, I think we have to go back to, to what you said about uh, the growth among college-educated women and and what we've seen in, in American politics in the last few cycles is this growing gap between the college-educated and the non-college-educated. And I think we, the, the, the word we have not spoken yet here is inflation. And when you when you when you when you uh, address the Hispanic population, you're talking about a a group of people that are more than likely uh, very very much uh, involved in service industries, in 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 low paying uh, 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 jobs that are that are tremendously impacted by the price of gasoline, which is the kind of the key driver I think in 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 uh, this uh, this attempt this this uh, this Biden downturn. Uh, and, and which he is trying to address. And who also struggled in the pandemic because they, for the most part, could not shelter in place. They had to go to their workplaces. So they were affected uh, more than many others. Alan? Well, I, you know, I, w I, w I wouldn't want to downplay the seriousness of the problems that Democrats are facing heading into this midterm election. But let, let's keep a couple of things in mind here. N number one, it's a midterm election with a Democrat in the White House. So the normal expectation is the president's party is going to lose seats in Congress, especially in the House of Representatives. That's what normally happens. Um, comparing 2018 with 2022, you know, is going to be misleading because 2018 was a midterm with an unpopular Republican president in the White House. So, of course, that was a very good year for Democrats. We know that this is not going to be a very good year for Democrats. We already know that. Um, as far as the Quinnipiac poll is concerned, it's an outlier. Uh, I always like to tell my students you know, not to pay too much attention to polls that are outliers, that are producing a result that differs from the overall polling average. Outliers are almost always wrong. Uh, and in this case, 
the you know the the average rating of Biden in terms of his approval rating, it's been stuck in the low 40s for the last few months. Uh, it hasn't really changed very much. Um, he fell, you know, from last summer to last fall, uh, particularly after the Afghanistan withdrawal. We saw his approval rating take take a drop or take a nosedive, and it's kind of been stuck there uh, around around 41 to 43 percent. Uh, on if you look at the average, uh, the, the Quinnipiac poll is the lowest approval rating that he's gotten in any poll in the last several months. So I think I don't think that I would read too much into that. I especially wouldn't read much into their reading on Hispanic voters. Their sample of Latino voters is undoubtedly very, very small, and it, it probably isn't very representative. So it's not to say, again, yeah. that Biden may not be in some trouble with Latino voters. The Democrats don't have to worry about support among Latino voters. Uh, but it is to say that I don't believe that number. Uh, you can't convince me that Biden is uh, has a higher approval rating among non-Hispanic whites than he does among Hispanic voters. I don't believe that. Um, and I, I think we'll, you know, we'll see hopefully more polling with big, maybe we'll get some bigger samples of Latino voters and, and we'll see what happens in the election. But uh, no doubt Democrats are in trouble. Biden is relatively unpopular. Um, and inflation is a big problem. Uh, gasoline prices are starting to come down. Um, if that continues yeah. and if we see a slowing down of inflation overall, that would be beneficial, I think, to at least somewhat beneficial to Democrats heading into the midterm election. Ellen, uh, while you got the ball in your court, one other quick thing here, because uh, some of what you just said represents an article that you uh, published in Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball not long ago, in which you essentially said some of this, and we're talking about nationally, not Georgia specifically. Yeah. Uh, you basically said Democrats shouldn't be quite as fearful that they're going to be blown out the way uh, uh, many people right now uh, think they're going to see, Right. Well, the Democrats have uh, uh, one thing going for them heading into the midterm elections, uh, which is that they, they don't have that many seats to begin with. So uh, if you look at the House of Representatives with a tiny majority that the Democrats have, 222 seats, and they have relatively few seats that are in uh, really uh, a Republican territory. Now, redistricting will change that a, a bit. Uh, but overall, um, not as many uh, vulnerable seats that are up. Uh, of course, the downside of having that small majority is that if they lose more five or more seats, they lose their majority. So you'd rather have a big majority going into it, but a smaller majority, a very small majority, and they lost seats in the presidential election. So um, they're not likely to lose 40, 50, or 60 seats. I mean, I think that, that size of loss in the House, unlikely given the size of the majority, could be more like 15, 20, 25, something like that. The Senate, that's even more true. Only 14 Democratic seats are up this year. So that's the Democrats' big advantage and why they actually do have a chance to hold the Senate, even if they have a bad election uh, overall, even if they lose a bunch of seats in the House, um, they still could hold on to the Senate or at least minimize their losses there because they only have 14 seats. Don't forget, in 2018, really... 2018, Republicans had a terrible midterm election. They gained seats in the Senate for the same reason. Mm. Really interesting perspective. Adrian, you're Stacey Abrams. You're on, the, you're on the Abrams team. You're one of our consultants. You're looking at the Biden approval numbers. You're looking at, at, at the vulnerabilities that that may present. You're got to, you've got to figure out how to deal with that as a candidate for 
governor, wh- how do you, how, what do you tell her? What do you tell the candidate to do? I think Stacey has the right idea. She is not only mobilizing voters, um, which she's been doing over the last decade, but she's also expanding um, her appeals. So I think she's going to get serious consideration by voters who are on the cusp or in the middle. Um, and she might be able to attract enough support, um, regardless of the fact that um, the president's polling numbers are low, um, particularly right here in Georgia, where she's well known. You know, she stayed well um, accessible. Like, you know, we haven't lost Stacey, even though she hasn't been able to campaign um, actively. She has stayed on the state's mind. She's made it national. I think that if she continues to lean forward, continues to raise the kind of money that she's raising, has strategic advertisements, um, Stacey's going to be gameful against Kemp for governor. By the way, I don't want to mislead our listeners. When I said you were on the team, I meant that kind of hypothetically. Oh, I was yeah. not, I'm not saying I'm you were a member of the Abrams, Abrams campaign. No, team. I'm not. I was, yeah, I was asking, you. I was asking for you to be <laughs> That's right. Amy? Speculatively, this is what I would say. Yeah. Amy? (laughs) And I think the other side is that, so the polls that we've been talking about, right, particularly the ones about, uh, you know, we were looking at the primary polls, those were Republican primary voters, right, which is why we saw, for example, incredibly high support for former President Trump, et cetera. The issue that is going to occur in the general election is that the group that we're not talking about are those that are, number one, Democratic voters, but also are true independents. And we know that there are a lot of swing voters. One of the most important things that came out of the January 2020 runoff was that we knew in the November election that there were a whole bunch of people who voted for Biden and voted for Purdue. They then did not vote for Purdue in the runoff when he attached himself to President Trump and sort of concerns over the election. And we saw either that they voted uh, in that race for Ossoff or that they stayed home altogether. And so that is the real concern that we have going into and that the Republicans, I think, have going into the general election is that. Many of them have had to go so far to the right to be able to assuage primary voters, to deal with concerns that it's not just that they didn't support President Trump, but that they're not conservative enough, that it makes it very difficult to swing back to the middle and to deal with those potential concerns of independent voters. And so I think we've got two questions that are going to come up. Number one, what's going to happen with those who are maybe on the fence, right? They're the more moderate Republicans, more moderate Democrats, the independents as well as what happens when, because this is likely to be that Kemp is going to win the primary, what do Donald Trump supporters do? Do they stay home? Do they vote for Stacey Abrams, as Donald Trump has has suggested, might be what the course of action, because he dislikes Mm -hmm. Kemp so much? And that's going to be, this is, nobody knows what's going to happen. And I guess one could say it's fascinating to watch as an outside observer. Jim and then Alan, uh, before we get to a break, I'd love to have both of you weigh in. Right. Well, very quickly, I think Amy's right. I mean, the thing you have to remember is we are now, this is the first day, the very first day of seersucker season. 
Uh, we are very. It is spring. We are very early here, and 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 we've got things on the calendar that are we know are going to happen that are that that is going to affect the, the outcome of this race. Uh, chief among them, uh, the the U.S. Supreme Court decision on whether Roe v. Wade is going to stand. So that's 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 very important, even among Republican voters. I would I, I would argue, you've also got, I mean, look, I've got to I've got to believe that somewhere in the works is a is a is a Democratic thirty second TV spot uh, uh, forecasting that Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to chair some important House committee, uh, and that is that is that is that is going to be a, a, a tremendous driver. I, I think uh, come come uh, August and September, uh, but but let me ask Alan, just since he's 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 next up, are the Democrats somewhat at a disadvantage because Stacey Abrams has already claimed the nomination? In essence, she's the only candidate who qualified, and that there is that there's you know there's there's no practice round the of, of turnout round. Uh, you've got a you've got a very important AG race on the Democratic side, but there's but that's that's about the only driver of primary voters. Is is that is that a disadvantage for them? Uh, I I don't think so. In that, uh, I mean, I do think you're going to see a much lower Democratic turnout in the primary compared with the Republican turnout. All the action, or almost all the action, is on the Republican side. They've got this very interesting contest for governor. They've got this very interesting contest for secretary of state. Democrats have some important contests, but they don't have a contest for governor. They don't have a contest in the Senate uh, race either. So I don't think you'll see a high turnout in the primary among Democrats. But I think Democrats would rather have an uncontested primary, rather have the party united behind their nominee, rather than seeing the kind of divisions we're seeing on the Republican side. What, what I, I would say about this upcoming election is that uh, it's important to keep in mind that we're in an, an, an era of straight ticket voting. Um, we're in an era in which voters cast a straight ticket ballot. There, there, there were a few uh, uh, Biden-Purdue voters, but it, it was a very small number if you look at the actual percentage of, uh, of the electorate. And I think what's going to mostly determine what happens in this upcoming midterm election when we get to the general is going to be turnout. The question is going to be, yes, there will be some swing voters, and they're important. I don't want to you know, completely uh, uh, overlook that. But turnout is key here. Can, and, and, and the question is, A, can the Republicans unite behind Brian Kemp if he's the nominee? Um, you know, can, can they drive the turnout of their base up? In the general election, you're going to see uh, Republicans run their usual very negative uh, campaign. They're going to focus uh, on attacking Stacey Abrams uh, and Warnock as well, and Biden. So it's going to be the trio. Biden, Warnock, Abrams are going to be the main focus. It's going to be a very negative campaign. You better turn out and vote or else these horrible Democrats are going to, are going to be uh, in power and, and they're going to turn this country into something that you won't recognize. That's the Republican campaign. Democrats are also going to run a very negative campaign driven by attacks on Donald Trump and on the Republican incumbents and on camp. Uh, but for Stacey Abrams and the Democrats, mobilization is crucial. They've got to get their voters energized. They've got to get them registered. They've got to get them turned out. The one thing Democrats have going in their favor heading into this midterm election also is that the demographics continue to shift in their favor in this state. Uh, now, over two to four right. years, it's not a big change, but that, that's important. All right, got to get to the final break of the show. Back with more in just a minute. 
We've only got a few minutes left on the show, but I want to turn to one final issue that really relates to a number of the things that we've talked about already on today's show, and that's this. Um, we've learned today that Attorney General Chris Carr has now joined a lawsuit uh, that um, was launched by Republican attorney generals in a number of states in an attempt to block the Biden administration uh, issuing an order to overturn Title 42. Remember, Title 42 is the executive order that Donald Trump put in place, which stopped people from uh, seeking asylum, crossing the border to do it here. They had to remain in Mexico. The president says it's time to end that. That's raised all sorts of concerns, not just about from Republicans, but Democrats as well, about how big a surge we might see of people coming across the border. So, um, Jim Galloway, uh, Carr has joined the suit to try to stop them from overturning Title 42. But let's add this element. Raphael Warnock, who's, you know, looking at re-election and has to be careful about where he stands on immigration, was critical of the president's decision and as a result has gotten some heat from immigration groups and Latin groups in Georgia. All of this points to the fact that because we've never been able to come up with a comprehensive immigration reform package of any kind, it's a treacherous territory <laughs> to get into almost no matter which side you're on. Right, right, and, and uh, let's let's remind the list, listeners that Title Forty Two is a, was it was 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 framed as a COVID uh, policy, as yes. that uh, yes. that that it was it was something uh, adopted to 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 prevent the spread of of COVID. Although there was very little evidence that this was this was uh, this was uh, actually the case. I think what you're seeing here is I find I find a Warnock split with Biden on this just absolutely fascinating. Because you know when this when 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 something like this happens, and and and, and it goes to Chris Carr too, there each party is doing extensive polling on the issue of immigration, and how it affects their voters, and and it's so it's it's no surprise that Carr would join that lawsuit because immigration is is such a hot issue on the Republican side. I just find it very fascinating that that Warnock is 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 in essence uh acknowledging that that immigration is a is is an issue that's that cuts his party in half or at least decreases significantly his support maybe in the suburbs. Uh and maybe maybe again uh, maybe among African Americans. Yeah, Adrian uh, Warnock is not is not alone as a Democrat seeking re-election. Hopefully, is in, in a, kind of taking a moderate position on some of these issues in criticizing Biden. I was surprised, and I'm looking forward to uh, Warnock expanding, you know, expounding on exactly why he's taking this position, along with other Democrats. Um, you know, I feel like the Title Forty Two law has created, you know, a really dangerous situation for immigrants. So whether we're, you know, okay with immigration coming in or not, um, you know, it has made the area where immigrants have to be a danger zone. People are getting snatched by gangs and, you know, aren't um, living in a situation that is very humane, in addition to the fact that we have asylum in the United States, right? And so this is denying people the due process that is allowed um, based upon your ability to come in um, because you have suffered in some other nation. So um, I'm interested to find out more about why Democrats want to uh, support the lawsuit and maintain Title 42. 
And so I'm going to pay attention over the next few days. And I, I'm not sure see what that's about. I'm not sure any Democrats. I'm not sure any Democrats are supporting the lawsuit. Warnock, I don't think, would support that lawsuit. It's a Republican lawsuit, but he has been critical of the president on Title 42. Amy? Yeah, I think it brings up sort of these conflicting issues of where, you know, at least the statements that, for example, Warnock and others have made are about wanting to see a plan in place. Um, that sort of the recognition that there is this big humanitarian crisis, so when, in fact, right, we let people come over the border, what are we then going to do about that? Because we do have people in poor health. We have people that uh, it's not clear that we've staffed up. In fact, one of the issues is that we have hardly any people that are there to be able to process claims on the border. And so without people to be able to do that, you're just going to have the same issues that Adrian was talking about on the Mexico side happening on the U.S. side. But I think it also brings up this sort of difficult rope that people are walking of trying to figure out what are the best plans of trying to, on some level, come back from the issues that we saw uh, with kind of plans put in place that didn't have a lot of backup, but then also the electoral concerns and how constituents are going to react. Alan, let me give you a last word on this. Well, I think the first thing to, to, to point out is that this has nothing to do with COVID. Um, you know, it seems like this is like the only COVID restriction Republicans are concerned about. They don't care about any other COVID restrictions. They just care about this one. This is about immigration. This is about asylum seekers. Um, and I think there are some legitimate concerns on the Democratic side about how this would actually play out in reality and, and whether we have the capability right now of processing these people who are coming in seeking asylum. On the other hand, uh, there's no question the current the status quo is terrible uh, and something <clears throat> something uh, really needs to be done about it. Uh, but it's clear that this is about immigration and what Republicans are playing on primarily is the fear of more dark skinned people who are going to come across the border. When, when Biden announced that we were going to accept 100,000 Ukrainian refugees, it didn't lead to any big outcry from Republicans. And I think that was absolutely the right decision. Don't get me wrong. But those, those are white refugees. And here we have people coming in from Central America uh, and, and Mexico, and that's causing the big concern. Yeah, you know, if you listen to the conservative media, they're using the word caravan in big ways again. Suddenly they're right. tracking mm-hmm. caravans coming. To the world. We're out of time for today's uh, show. Uh, Adrian Jones, uh, Ellen Abramowitz, Amy Steigerwald, Jim Galloway, thanks for a great conversation. I'm already starting to work on tomorrow's show to get to some topics we didn't get to today. Uh, for instance, Andrew Clyde is taking some heat from a lot of people who uh, think that he should not have blocked a federal courthouse being named for the first African-American Supreme Court justice in Florida. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about the fact tomorrow Marcus Flowers, the Democrat running as Marjorie Taylor Greene, raised more money than she did in this last reporting period. Will it mean anything? Probably not. But we'll talk about it tomorrow. I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. See you tomorrow.